Welcome to Lipan Apocalypse, Episode 2, Alliance and Advantage. I'm Brandon Seal. Plains Apaches of the Texas Panhandle wouldn't see the Spanish again for almost 40 years after their first meeting with Coronado in 1541. Which didn't mean, however, that they didn't feel the Spanish presence in other ways. All throughout the middle of the 16th century, the Spanish pushed up through the central Mexican highlands, fueled by the spectacular wealth of the mines that they found there. The silver supply of Europe would septuple over the next hundred years, fueled in large part by these Mexican mines. And despite royal prohibitions to the contrary, almost every ounce of that silver was pulled out of the ground by Indian slaves, who died at horrific rates in the process. Using a loophole in Spanish law which technically forbade Indian slavery, as long as slavers could claim that they had captured the Indians warring unlawfully against the Spanish throne, then they could keep them. Which created a terrible but terribly profitable incentive for maintaining a state of continuous war against the natives in northern Mexico. Profitability of the Indian slave trade became perhaps the primary enticement to Spanish North American frontier service and settlement. The Humanos strongholds along the Rio Grande and the southern Texas plains shielded the Plains Apaches somewhat from these earliest slaving expeditions. But not entirely. When Spanish expeditionaries returned to the Texas Panhandle in 1581, they were received much more coldly than Coronado had been in 1541. 400 Apache bowmen met this Spanish expedition and made it clear in no uncertain terms that the Spanish were not welcome. Something had changed, and most likely, it had been rumors of or direct encounters with Spanish slavers. Despite the Apache's initial hostility, the Franciscan expedition leader came forward and tried something. He made the sign of the cross. The friar didn't realize this. There were things about the symbol of the four-pointed cross that actually aligned pretty well with Apache cosmology. Four was a sacred number to the Plains Apaches. It represented the four sacred directions, the four sacred colors, black, yellow, white, and the bluish-gray, and it shows up throughout their legends. And so, an Apache came forward and made the symbol of the cross back to the friar. What had killer of enemies taught them about alliance-making? It was a moral obligation, even sometimes with deceitful people that you had good reason to mistrust. You just never knew what good could come from trying especially in a world turned upside down by epidemic, war, and climate change. The 400 Apache bowmen stood down, and the two sides approached each other and greeted, awkwardly, skeptically. Because the Apache obligation to deal with strangers wouldn't go so far as to require them to let the friar and his expedition into their town that night. And so after saying hello, they forced the friar and his expeditionaries to set up their camp at a distance which proved to have been smart. Because when the Apaches woke up the next morning, one of their Apache brothers was gone. And so too were the Spaniards. It seemed like the stories that the Apaches had heard were true, that the Spanish just couldn't help their slaving. And yet some Apaches must have weighed in that it made no sense to send a slaving expedition all this way just to take one slave. 
And frankly, the friar's expedition was so small and awkward on the plains that the Apache could track them down and overwhelm them in just a few days if they wanted to, even on foot. Apaches were noted by nearly every contemporary for their quote-unquote hardiness, and they quote, rivaled horses for endurance, end quote. Richard Gonzalez, a modern-day Lipan Apache, told me a family motto, if you can go a mile, you can go a hundred miles. And so in this instance, Plains Apaches decided to be patient. And sure enough, a few days later, the Spanish expedition returned. They had just gone on a buffalo hunt. And the Apache brother was returned unharmed, and frankly may have sort of volunteered for the assignment out of a very killer of enemies type of fearlessness. By so doing, he had seen the future, he reported back to his brethren, describing how the Spanish had killed 40 buffalo with unimaginable speed, using their horses to run down the great beasts and their muskets, or arquebuses in this case, I guess, to dispatch them from a safe distance. The expedition-leading friar then made gifts of buffalo meat to his Apache hosts, lots of it, showing that he understood the principles of reciprocal exchange, that he understood, perhaps, how to alliance make. When the friar and his expedition left, the Plains Apache community reconsidered their hostility toward these newcomers. Perhaps their initial impression in 1541 had been right after all. Perhaps the Spanish could be treated with. They certainly couldn't be ignored. In 1598, Don Juan de Oñate formally took possession of what would become the Spanish province of New Mexico and all the peoples within it, most notably the Pueblos. In an extended listing of the tribes over whom he claimed sovereignty, however, he conspicuously left out the Plains Apache. On the contrary, he sent an expedition to them over in the Texas Panhandle to, from the Apache's perspective, pay them tribute. The Plains Apaches received Oñate's emissaries warmly, without fear or reservation this time. They lifted up their palms to the sun, offering their symbol of friendship to the emissary, and brought him wild plums and pomegranates. The emissary, too, brought the appropriate amount of gifts and distributed them, and some of the Plains Apaches, perhaps, began to fantasize about the possibilities of a grand Spanish-Apache alliance. Their Humano rivals watched all of this from down on the Edwards Plateau with great concern. Inasmuch as they were bearing the brunt of Spanish slaving and Spanish disease, they couldn't afford to lose their control of trade with the Spanish or with the Pueblos. Certain Pueblo towns, those in the north, had already drifted into the Plains Apache orbit and abandoned their Humano trade. And increasingly, the Humanos were realizing that the Plains Apaches weren't just an economic and military force. From their base in the Texas Panhandle on the Red River, their cultural and spiritual influence had begun to infiltrate Humano society as well. Apaches just had an aura about them, and a keen sense of the power of religious expression and the soft power of cultural exchange. The Apaches had certainly figured out that religion was a big deal to these Spanish newcomers. And after all, they made the sign of the cross before and after everything they did. In new towns, they typically built a church before they even built their own houses. And they were always hanging depictions of a teenage mother on the walls of their churches and weaving her into their stories that they tried to explain to the Plains Apaches and other North American natives without much success. Sometime in about 1627, several Plains Apache captains boldly came into a Spanish-controlled pueblo and entered a church. There, they claimed, they were moved by a candle-lit sculpture of the Virgin Mary. They told the friars there that they wanted to be brothers in the religion of the Spanish, 
that they would splash the water on their heads and accept baptism in the name of their Spanish friends. Maybe these Apaches were driven by genuine religious impulse, or maybe it was a political calculation, but what's undeniable is that the Spanish friars had long fantasized about converting Plains Apaches to Christianity. Apaches' arrogance and independence is precisely what made them the ultimate proselytory prize. For the first 50 years of contact, however, not a single Apache had ever agreed to be baptized, so this offer in 1627 was a big deal. The friars rushed to baptize the two captains, who promised to carry the religion back to their communities. A wave of hope washed over Spanish administrators and Plains Apache captains all, energized by the possibility of a great Spanish-Apache alliance in Christ. The Humanos, sitting one checker square to the south, realized they'd been outmaneuvered. They felt the Spanish Pueblo trade slipping away, and they saw a Spanish-Apache alliance arraying against them. But then, a miracle happened. Conveniently for the Cumanos, in 1629, they were visited by a mysterious lady in blue, like the one in the paintings in the Spanish churches, and she had started to teach them about the Spanish religion. Fifty Cumanos now made their way to the nearest Spanish-controlled pueblo and told the administrators what had happened, how this lady in blue had told them to travel west and find Spanish holy men. The excited friars took the Cumanos into a church and showed them a painting of the Virgin Mary. Yes, yes, they responded confirming that the lady in blue, quote, looked like her, but younger, end quote. That was good enough for the priests. They splashed the water on the enthusiastic Humanos' heads and embraced them as brothers in Christ. They're now preferred brothers in Christ. Because immediately after this, the Spanish governor sent a war party to attack the specific Plains Apache town in which the Apache captains baptized in 1627 lived. Was this some kind of secret condition of the Humanos' conversion? Why had they decided to retaliate so specifically and openly against the Apaches that should have been their closest allies? Had the Spanish decided they could only have one Texas Plains ally and that the Humanos were now it? The timing was so suspicious and the attack so deliberately targeted. In fact, one of the Apache captains was killed with the rosary that had been gifted to him at his baptism in his hand. In the rest of the town, the survivors anyway, were enslaved. This attack must have left the Plains Apache's head spinning. If accepting someone's religion wasn't enough to win their friendship, well, what in the world was? It was almost enough to make you think that the Spanish were too dense or too irrational to deal with in any other way than with the universal language of violence. To their credit, the Spanish friars protested the enslavement of these newest members of their flock, leading to the ultimate emancipation of the captured Apaches. But then the friars went and did something almost just as stupid. That same year, 1629, they sent some of their own deep into Texas, somewhere on the Concho River near the site of modern Paint Rock, Texas, whose name makes direct reference to the pictographic proof of a large and prosperous native presence in the region. And the friars declared their intention to found a mission there, a mission for the Humanos. The Plains Apaches knew what this really meant, though that the Spanish were full-on allies of the Humanos now, to the extent that they were willing to turbocharge the Humanos' economy with a permanent trading station, which is more or less how Texas natives mostly viewed these missions, and which also frankly could serve as an arms depot for Humano warriors. Thus began a long history of Spanish missionaries in Texas naively believing that they could be friends with people on both sides of centuries-old Indian rivalries. 
And actually, it goes beyond naivete. It came from arrogance. Why wouldn't everyone want to be friends with Spain, the most powerful empire on earth? Even the word that the friars used for bringing native allies into missions, reducing them, they called it, hints at their true views on the power dynamic. And it was a power dynamic that Plains Apaches would never accept, ever. Which might explain why Spanish civil authorities were biased almost from the start against them. The Apaches were just too powerful, too independent. Secure in their alliance with the Humanos, by 1630, the Spanish were on the offensive and attacking every Plains Apache town in striking distance of the Rio Grande Pueblos. Uncounted numbers of Apaches were killed or enslaved. Indian slaves soon outnumbered Spaniards three to one in Spanish New Mexico. Even Apache merchants were being captured and enslaved as they came into trade fairs, a major breach of every basic human protocol and economically short-sighted as well. Except that increasingly, the Spanish didn't much need Apache trade. Having shored up their relationship with the Cumanos, they had access to all the hides and tallow and salt that they could need. And unlike the Pueblos, there wasn't really much that the Spanish needed from the Catoan speakers on the other side of the Texas Plains. In the mid-1630s, however, the Plains Apaches began to strike back, surgically and strategically. First, they increased their attacks on the Cumanos, pushing south into central Texas and causing the Spanish to abandon plans for that first Cumano mission. Then, in 1639, the Apaches struck the Spanish in the Pueblos, attacking various towns and always making sure to burn the meager corn surplus that Spanish administrators had collected that year. And the Apaches went to work, alliance-making, right underneath Spaniards' noses. Plains Apaches had never given up on the idea of an alliance directly with the Pueblo people who, by 1640, were suffocating under the weight of a generation of Spanish occupation. And unlike the Spanish, the Pueblos were suffering from the loss of the plains trade. And they were starving from the loss of the corn surpluses that had been the basis for their great trading wealth and that the Spanish now taxed at nearly 100%. Most of all, the Pueblos were fed up with having been, quote-unquote, reduced to second-class citizens in their own towns. From 1640 on, it wasn't hard for Apaches to bring the Pueblos into their orbit. The Apaches and Pueblos became allies resisting Spanish rule, sometimes openly, sometimes discreetly. Which is all an interesting glimpse into the persistence and effectiveness of Apache alliance-making on a generational timescale. In or around 1640, Plains Apaches and Pueblos established a great trading center up on the plains in modern-day Kansas, just out of reach of Spanish patrols. El Cuartelejo, the Spanish called it, the barracks, named after its stone and adobe structures. It was a Plains Apache-controlled but Pueblo-built trading fort that prospered for the next century from its control of an illicit Northern Plains trade route and from the influx of Puebloans escaping from Spanish rule. And it benefited from something else as well. Around that same time, the horse had also escaped onto the plains. And the Plains Apache we're about to make him their own on the next episode of Lipan Apocalypse. Thank you for listening. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. The intro and outro music is from the White Mountain Apache Crown Dancers. You can find them on YouTube. Special thanks this season to my Lipan friends, Bernard Barcena, Lucille Contreras, Richard Gonzalez, Margot Moreno, and Gary Perez. I hope I'm doing your story justice. 
and make sure to check out Lucille's Texas Tribal Buffalo Project online and fill out her Texas Indigenous Data Sovereignty Study. For more information about the Lipan Apaches, check out the books by Thomas Britton, Jose Medina Gonzalez Davila, Nancy McGowan Minor, and Sherry Robinson. Also, check out the doctoral thesis of Enrique Maistas and the Texas Observer article by Dylan Bedour. Lastly, go to Gorka Alonso's website, apacheria.es. For more information on my other projects, you can go to brandonseal.com. <laughs>